you know, neither of us is wearing a hat. No, but only one of us usually does. I know, but it kind of gives a different vibe, yeah. doesn't it? Maybe. It kind of looks like Maybe we're the consultants who showed up to sort of build efficiency at your company. We have come around the podcast. We've been hired by us <laughs> to assess redundancies, <laughs> and it turns out there are two more people than this podcast needs. Two more. Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Happy New Year. We've made it to 2024. Yeah. I'm going to make a prediction okay. that this is going to be a busy one. This is going to be a freaking doozy of a year, a barn burner. Lots going on. And, you know, this is the year. Mm-hmm. This is a year in which there's going to be a very well publicized total eclipse in April because it crosses right through the heart of this beautiful nation of ours. Heck yeah. And. And then an election. And, you know, if it yeah. were 500 years ago, right, people would look back on that and be like, what an omen of yeah. ill times to come. Or or good times. A harbinger, right? A harbinger, yeah. I think harbinger, that's bad across the board, right? Yeah, it's not like this birthday cake is the harbinger <laughs> of my birthday party. That's not how that works. No, it's uh, but again, it's context specific. I think you hear harbinger. We need to, we need to reclaim it, sort of the way the GOP claimed the american flag pins mm. we need to take that sort of stuff back yeah they're not the only americans no there are probably others too with the eclipse omen any yeah. way you cut it half the people are going to be like good omen half the people are going to be like bad omen. right i think we could take it back i yeah. think this could be the year that we take the american flag back well yeah i mean or start small just the term harbinger harbinger oh be, okay cool yeah you know, a friend shows up at the bar and yeah. you're like, oh, this is going to be a harbinger of a good time. What's up, harbinger? Sandwich comes with a free pickle. You said this is going to be the harbinger of a good lunch. It harbinges. Oh, harbinge drinking. Har binge <laughs> drinking. And you know what? None of that is actually happening, at least for 50% of this podcast this month, January, because I'm doing the, the dry January. You are doing the dry January. And let me take this opportunity to say, this is Jernos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I am Stephen Jackson. That's right. Jernos, Stephen, as you may know, is a show in which we take a dumb story and we take a smart story, both in the news, and we drill down on them. What makes them tick? Why are they in the zeitgeist? And then we figure out the secret things that tie them together. Yeah, that it is, man. So I started, you never start dry January on January 1st, right? You know, you got to kind of ease into Mm -hmm. it. January 2nd, I've been been dry since then. The first sort of popular mention or instance of dry January was in Finland in 1942, where they did this sort of propaganda campaign to do sober January in order to help in the war against the Soviet Union. So when it first happened in the 40s, it was because there was a war on. And then it probably caught, truly caught fire around like 2013 in the Western world because of an organization called Alcohol Change UK, whose mission is, you know, what you'd imagine it to be. And they really popularized it as a formal thing. It's interesting that it's become such a cultural sort of meme and phenomenon because typically things that go viral are either like vapid or inane or and I guess on the good side of things, you know, they could be really funny. On the bad side of things, you have these like crazy challenges, you know, like 
the milk crate challenge where people were like breaking their arms and legs where you stack the milk crate. That's right. Yeah. AKA the gravity challenge. Or the cinnamon every time. The cinnamon challenge where people are getting really sick, all that. Those are harbingers of a bad challenge. (laughs) This one, I think, though, you know, dry January, the appeal is twofold. One, there's the FOMO of it, Mm. right? Everybody else is doing it. So it's a fun thing to do. But also, it's self reinforcing, right? If no one's going out to drink, yeah. then you have an excuse to also not drink. So it sort of builds on itself in a way that it's a virtuous cycle. Yeah, for sure. A- except for the people working in like the beverage industry or the hospitality industry. It's like, okay, real great. You guys have found God and everything for the next like 28 days, but like I need to pay rent. You know who thinks about that a lot is brands companies Mm. that are trying to sell stuff yeah and they live in the cycle of time just like the rest of us and one thing that certain brands particularly booze brands have to think about is the essentially the horrible thing that you're doing to them when you're inflicting dry january on them when you and all of your hippie friends are (laughs) trying to take care of yourselves you're actually hurting brands you're hurting american brands and uh some foreign brands of course you know a brand is a sort of organism and has to adapt or die. And some of them figure out that they can adapt to that. They have to adapt. They have to go where the kids are going. And they have to make booze that's not booze. Enter the hard seltzer. So hard seltzers, number one thing. Everyone's getting seltzered. Mm-hmm. Now people are starting to rethink their relationship with alcohol. And the big kahuna of all hard seltzers, the one who put hard seltzer on the map, White Claw, January 1st dropped their new non-alcoholic seltzer. So it went seltzer, just regular old Schweppes, to hard seltzer. The kind of thing that vaudevillians were squirting each other with. There it is. That's that's the first seltzer. And then it got to hard seltzer. Mm -hmm. And now hard seltzer, it's back to seltzer. But here's the thing about the White Claw seltzer is that it's 0% alcohol, but they've engineered it to taste as though it has that kind of bite of alcohol in it which is really interesting right. because the, the flavors are kind of weird. It was, it's not a defanged hard seltzer. Right. It's a seltzer. That's white fang is something else. Totally different. And you know who's the most enthusiastic about that? Who? White Claw. If you look <laughs> at the press release that White Claw put out, it's there fun. is some extraordinary feats so of verbiage and joie de vivre. But from the perspective of White Claw, what they're doing is nothing short of... I don't know, the invention of the railroad or the splitting of the atom. I mean, their their enthusiasm for it, they say, quote, after years of research and breakthroughs, including development of our proprietary plant-based sweetener technology, White Claw has found a unique way to make beverages that have all the taste and complexity you expect in an alcoholic beverage yeah. made non-alcoholic from the start. So it's not a lesser version of anything. It's more. No, that's poetry. Quote White Claw, for adults seeking the same depth of flavor that they get in alcoholic drinks, still or sparkling seltzers with added flavor are no substitute. They're bland liquids that fall flat by comparison to real drinks, the company stated. What's water but just a bland liquid? (laughs) Yeah. And the idea that this thing is this tremendous innovation, you know, they say, quote, as a leading edge beverage company (laughs) with a culture of innovation, White Claw Seltzer Works Spent decades, Stephen, decades researching how taste and alcohol work together. Our investment resulted in patents and proprietary beverage technologies. It's like they built a rocket. I mean, who? Our our new to world approach, new to world approach. That's they got a a cons person. 
led us to develop our own iconic flavors found in no other drinks. As a result, White Claw Hard Seltzer pioneered the most significant new alcohol category since Prohibition. Wow. End quote. What makes it a new alcohol category is that it is, they have invented soda that doesn't taste as good. The front runner of all of this was freaking Zima. Right. Yeah, and then yeah. and then Smirnoff Ice. And then and then Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's not like this is it, it's crazy that. And, and, oh, I saw Mike, Mike's Hard Lem- Lemonade there in the heat of the moment of the seltzer craze. Mike's Hard Lemonade also released a seltzer. So it's Mike's Hard Lemonade Seltzer, wow. which is what seltzer, it always yeah. was. It's insane. So we understand that the brand is trying to find a market advantage. They've got this whole month where they're getting screwed out of revenue because everybody has selfishly decided to stop yeah. drinking. So what underpins all that other than making a quick buck? How do they make that work? How do they sell well, it? Well, a lot actually underpins this. And it's kind of, I think, a, it, there's sort of a confluence of a number of different factors. So let's go back a little bit. A worldwide modeling study that was published in The Lancet in 2019 found that alcohol consumption increased worldwide by as much as 70% between 1990 and 2017. And that's also somewhat driven by trends in Southeast Asia. Okay, so everybody, generally speaking, since the early 90s, the worldwide people started drinking more. We all know that it's the collective public health problem that drinking produces is very severe, right? When you really look at people with alcohol use disorder and the general strain it puts on healthcare and systems and all that kind of stuff, right? Put that in a box. Then in 2020, there was this pandemic where across the board, people reported drinking more than the normal, right? So you go from 2020 into 2022, 2023, and drinking itself kind of was on the rise. Now, like all things, we're starting to see a bit of a pullback, specifically being driven by Gen Z. So there's another recent study that found that Gen Z individuals reported to drink an estimated 20% less than their millennial counterparts, and that interest in general in a sober lifestyle has grown. So generally speaking, the younger generation is leaning towards drinking less. This is also reflected in upticks in the participation in Dry January. A similar survey found that 24% of people in the U.S. were highly likely to participate in Dry January in 2023. And again, that skews more towards younger people than older people. It's certainly a generational change. So now let's get back to White Claw, who truly had this meteoric rise in popularity and financial success because they met younger drinkers exactly where they were in exactly the right moment with the exact right brand and the exact right vibe and the exact right product. You get all those things together, your brand explodes. And that's why there's probably a really good chance that it's going to catch on because you think about branding in general. And a big thing about drinking is always like the cool kids are doing it, right? Or you feel you would feel like a sort of pariah if you're at a party and you weren't drinking. So what if you were able to provide a type of beverage that allowed you to kind of not stick out, but also be social and not be like, hey, dude, who brought the soup? Which I'm sure all the young kids are saying these days. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and they're Again, to go back to their press release, which I think says so much about their own bias, you know, they're they're really leaning into that idea of of peer pressure as a driver for this. You know, we're adapting to the idea that young drinkers are beset by all of these pressures at all times. And so we're just trying to give them this opportunity. So, you know, it says that the new zero percent alcohol quote is a way to say yes to more drinking invitations 
and enjoy more adult drinking get-togethers without pressure to fit in, whether you're wanting the complexity of a real drinking experience where alcoholic beverages might not be appropriate, like a business lunch, or pacing yourself during an afternoon or night out with friends, da-da-da-da-da, White Claw 0% alcohol provides a delicious, low-calorie, hydrating, non-alcoholic choice that doesn't make you seem like an outsider, end quote. That doesn't make you seem like an outsider. You are one. Steven, you Don't are be a one. Dork. You dry Don't bone. Be a dork. But you can but that's the idea is like what they're essentially saying is we're giving you an ability to camouflage yourself as a true yeah. drinker. There's a whole idea that's implicit in this that you're not a drinker, you somehow don't belong, at least in situations where drinking is going on. The presumption of this whole thing is like it's better to drink, but since you can't do that, we don't want you to seem like a pariah. So if you look at it, you'll see that the zero percent can looks a little different so you're sort of announcing that you're not drinking but the idea is well someone from across the room watching you at a party at least that person's raising and lowering a can to their mouth and behind the terror of their eyes they (laughs) seem like they're having a good time so i guess we'll allow them to. i don't know i don't know if that's the case i think that it's bigger than that like I feel like the branding's different, right? So I think it what they're finding is that it's cool to not drink. And with something like a White Claw Zero, it's meeting that new cultural norm of it being okay to not drink, which I think is, again, this is all a very good thing. But I think what's interesting is that at least it's a White Claw. It's cool to be sober. It's not cool to not like White Claw. Yeah, they're assuming that, well, their brand is the baseline for drinking. I mean, I think there's two things that are implied there that, I'm not sure that they compute. Or if the first is true, then the implications of the second are terrifying. The first is in this hypothetical party scenario or whatever, that somehow there's some kind of judgment either that you feel or that's put on you from outside that drinking, you know, a Topo Chico or a Coke Mm -hmm. or whatever is somehow going to get frowned upon. Well, Coke, what are you doing with all that sugar? Come on now. Right. And then the second point is and this is the one that's really terrifying, is does that then mean that people are drinking White Claw because they like the taste so much that that's why? Because if you're not getting judged for drinking Coke or whatever you would prefer to drink in that situation, why would you drink White Claw? Unless, as they would have you believe, it's so good. Thank God I can drink it without alcohol because it's really, I'm there for the taste. Just like with Playboy, you're there for the articles. Yeah, is, is this drink for somebody who really fell in love with White Claw and then is now kind of going with the general trend that we're seeing of people just drinking less so that they still will feel as if they are in a party mode because they're drinking this thing that has that sort of bitey feel to it. It's not just like a LaCroix or something like that. Yeah, that is weird. It, because then it also means that White Claw is just getting you you're out one door, you're in the other. Well, I mean, I think that's how they close the loop. They're like, oh, wait, why don't we just make non-alcoholic seltzer? Which is, like you said, how seltzer started. Yeah. That's the whole point. And seltzer was the thing that you added to booze to give it fizz or whatever. Mm. And now here's this version that somehow isn't just like fruit-flavored seltzer, but is based on the way it's described, fruit-flavored seltzer that tastes like there's booze in it which may just all be appealing to like muscle memory. Like people expect to taste what they're yeah. going to taste. It'll feel like this natural transition from one to the next. But it's very strange. It's very it's very like theater. So, you know, the next innovation will be something like some sort of Pepsi or Diet Coke or something like that. Maybe that's where they're A going. Cola. They're just going into 
the soft drink market via this kind of weird route. You know, as much as we are trying to take apart this hypothetical scenario where, you know, peer pressure is driving people to drink a weird tasting soda, there was at least one article that offered the perspective from an alcoholic about why something like this would be valuable. It was an article in the Washington Post by Alison Robicelli, and I think the title will tell you kind of everything you need to know. Quote, non-alcoholic white claw is a dumb idea. As an alcoholic, I welcome it. She goes on to say, quote, being unable to enjoy the occasional social quaff with the general population is not something my kind, meaning alcoholics, are particularly stoked about. I don't want to be an alcoholic, but I am. Having non-alcoholic beverage options doesn't just keep me sober, it makes me feel human. So then she says, I'm grateful for this golden age. And even though White Claw 0% may be one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard, <laughs> I won't be insulted by it. Though I will, on principle, refuse to try it. It's similar to even the idea that dry January is cool to do and that we're seeing the numbers indicate that younger generations are moving away from sort of blind alcohol consumption. But the one thing you always have to pull back and say like, okay, well, how good is it? Because it's still an element of a company whose bottom line is dedicated to getting people, you know, hooked on their product more or less, right? And so, I mean, there's an element of it's like Miller Lite, you know, running a sort of a detox center or something like that. Like, hey, you know, we got you there mm -hmm. and now we'll help you out. Or End to end. Vertical integration, Stephen. Vert now that's vertical integration. Yeah. I think what we see in this is this sort of evolutionary process, right? A brand comes in to an environment, says, what's our opportunity here? White Club is very smart to say, like you said, young people want something that's lighter, more effervescent, mm -hmm. lower calories. Let's create a booze for them. Then the tyranny of dry January started to really pick up. <laughs> Young Americans are drinking less. They said, we have to pivot. How can we do that? Let's just offer a non-booze booze. And they did that. So you have this thing that looks from the outside, sort of like this natural process of adaptation. And it's always funny to think about how we put those kind of naturalistic narratives onto these types of yeah. stories. Because we sort of see, or at least I see, nature stories everywhere. And I was glad to find out that I was not alone in that when I saw a story about a recent study that came out, Stephen, in the journal iScience, little bitty I, big S, Okay, science. I think I know what their focus is. Yeah, and the study was about emoji, yep. Stephen, the tiny little images. Because that's the that plural. Are, that is. The singular would be emoji. Emoji. Emo no. Emo I feel like it's both. Emojin. People, it's in common use. You'd say it's an emoji. Emoji. Yeah. There, I kind of yeah. Kind of class. But if you're it at up. a party where you're drinking your fake white emoji. claw and you say emojis, no one's got a bad eye at a claw party. Yeah, maybe they won't. This study, Stephen, <laughs> came out last month. It looked at all of the animal emoji, plant emoji, all the emoji of living things, and then it compared them because these are scientists compared them to the actual tree of life to see how living things were represented. Not surprisingly, Stephen, there is nah. a little bit of what they call a taxonomic bias, which means we humans tend to favor critters that are more like us. Mm -hmm. The short version of it is that the phylum chordata, which is the one that we belong mm -hmm. to, and fish and lizards and basically anything with a backbone and a skeleton. Um, and an anus. Is and an anus. <laughs> yes, Stephen, that was part of his five things. Anuses can be here too. Yes. Um, <laughs> is wildly overrepresented. Now that's an emoji. Now that is an emoji. The anus. Yeah. 
Interestingly, the starfish was one that they've been trying to get past for a while. Oh, gosh. Okay, sorry. Uh, you were saying. It's not been approved yet. You were saying. Mm-hmm. Stephen, I'm not mad at you. But uh, there's five things in Cortana that I remember that stuck at that is a backbone. Sure, everyone talks about the backbone. There's some that, that's one of them. Backbone. And apparently, the one thing you took away from that day of class was everything that has an anus. <laughs> Is Cordata. Well, you know, whatever. Whatever gets you through the class successfully. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> things with buttholes. Got it. Overrepresented. Got it. Arthropoda, yep. the phylum for bugs, mm. spiders, crustaceans. Yeah. Underrepresented. Of course, always. Way more of those in the real world than there are in emoji. Yeah. And then you have things like mollusks, which there's not a ton of, but, you know, like. Uh, shelly things. Shelly things, exactly right. There's four of those. In emoji form, the octopus, the squid, a snail, and then it just a shell, which it seems like kind of a cheat because there's nothing in it. Um, a couple that have no representation at all, platyhelminthes, which is the flatworms, nematoda, which is the roundworms, no emoji for them, anelida, which is the segmented worm, there is one worm, which is the earthworm, looks like, and then cnidaria, which is the jellyfish, corals, all of those guys. Two of those. So the writers of the study mm. are saying, you know, everything is out of whack yeah. in emoji form. And this is bad because we use emoji to communicate. And so if we don't have this sort of shorthand language, yeah. how are we going to, Stephen, talk about all of the diversity of life on Earth, particularly in the midst of a biodiversity loss like we're going through right now? It's a conversation starter. And it's so weird that you chose to bring this up today because I was thinking about emoji about how it's a multinational language, right? It really does break down language barriers in this super unique way. So there's a whole accessibility component to emoji that is really, really cool. Um, I hate to do this, Brandon. I'm so sorry. Because mm-hmm. a couple minutes ago, I was like, everything with Cordata, it's got to have an anus. And it... We remember that, Stephen. We remember that it's time not true. that you went full butthole. It's not true. It, it has to have yeah. a post-anal tail. Because I was thinking about it. I was like, all that other stuff you just talked about, they it all poops. It's not like everything, you know, a lot of these things that aren't encordata. Earthworms po- have buttholes. It just happens that their digestive system is a loop. And unfortunately for them, their mouth and their okay. butthole so, are right next to each other. I'm very other. sorry. I needed to fact check myself. It's a post-anal tail. That's what all the cordata has. Mm-hmm. So anyways, emoji is really helping to break down barriers culturally, <laughs> linguistically. <laughs> yeah. Steven's apology about the anus thing is not forgotten about. And you're right. There are a lot of people using emoji worldwide. According to one factoid, 92% of the world's online population use emoji. Wow. And the number one, can you guess which one the number one emoji is? Uh, Non-animal related. That's the number two. Number one is Tears of Joy. Oh, that's a fun one, too. You know what? That's great. That's also good news. That's kind of like how January is getting popular. Love is cool. See, it's hip to be square. Yeah. And you also think like how often, I mean, it makes sense that the tears of joy are the one, you know, like for as many as are out there overall, for as many emoji as are out there overall, we really aren't using a lot of them. And that's what that article said is that, you know, you have the heart, you have the tears of joy, and then there's a big fall off to the next plateau, which is, you know, thumbs up and face and a lot of are, so of are they generally positive like the top the yeah like the top tier like the top most used emoji are they generally positive from the research you did yeah it's a lot of i guess i would say 
it's dominated by faces with water coming out of them. <laughs> so it's a lot of tears of joy. There's the tilted head tears of that's joy. That's like I think that's rolfing. I think that's when you're rolling on the floor rolfing, yeah. laughing. There's the one where there's just the cascade waterfall yeah. of water down the yeah. face, which is like I'm really sad. I thought it was like um, I'm overcome. And then a bunch with of emotion. Overcome with emotion, which you know, again, could be a harbinger of Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. There it is. Mm-hmm. One of the authors of the paper, Stephen, <laughs> Francesco Fisitola, who's an animal biology professor at the University of Milan, says, you know, they had been thinking about biodiversity loss and conservation efforts and how do we get people thinking more about conservation? He said, but, quote, trying to communicate about biodiversity is difficult for us because the languages and cultures are different. Any tool, including emojis, that improves understanding and connection is fundamental, end quote. That comes from a story in Scientific American. So you say, well, okay, let's have more emoji, right? We want to have, like on the planet Earth, you want to have more biodiversity. The more life there is, the better. The emoji sphere is a different kind of ecosystem, Stephen, and it doesn't work in entirely the same Mm -hmm. way. There's a couple of potential drawbacks that make this weird. One is that in the real world, a snail is a snail is a snail. It does snail things. But in emoji form, a snail isn't used to represent snails necessarily it can be used to represent somebody being slow so there's an idea of like the emoji is a language it's not just about representing animals so there's kind of a disconnect there between Mm. between the thing and what it's communicating and and whether having more emoji is necessarily the right way to go it's not like everybody's suddenly crazy about eggplants (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's right now if we could talk to the eggplant lobby it would be interesting to see if eggplants have become more popular. Yeah. Nevertheless, the author Francesco Fisitola says, again, in this Scientific American article, he does not think everything needs to be an emoji. Quote, it's not possible to have one million emojis. That would make everything meaningless because emojis are for fast communication. And like he says, having a million would make it impossible. And also, because it would require software to have that many emoji, you know, slower phones would just have a hard time. They would just crash under the weight of the full biodiversity of this emoji universe. Could be tricky. Yeah, it's funny the degree of potential virtue you can see in you know, this, the existence of emoji, right? And back to this idea that there are accessibility implications to it. You know, you think that if there are too many emoji, then also that would potentially start increasing a certain type of digital divide between people who can only afford cheaper phones with less storage space. And then suddenly they couldn't accommodate the entire emoji library and you'd be cutting certain people out of the equation. And the person who brought that up and uh, she was quoted in the Scientific American article is uh, a woman named Jennifer, the number eight Lee. So she's a current member and former vice chair of the nonprofit Unicode Consortium's Emoji Subcommittee, which is actually responsible for shaping uh, emoji policies, okay? And she also co-founded an organization called Emojination, which is an organization that advocates for more uh, inclusive emoji and emoji that's more representative. And so I went on over to learn a little bit more about Emojination. And the mission is actually very cool because you find that there is a great deal of potential for advocacy when just focusing on this thing, right? They 
helped to bring the hijab emoji, the sauna emoji, the red envelope emoji, the dumpling emoji, the broccoli emoji, and the DNA emoji to our mobile devices. And so I think that's just pretty cool. Now, what's what's interesting about the DNA emoji, everything else is kind of high-minded. You know, broccoli they did with vegetarians and sauna emoji they did with the Finnish government, interestingly enough. The DNA emoji, hmm. they the did Finns it. Are back. There's one of these things that is not like the other because the DNA emoji was done with GE and the American Chemical hmm. Society. So hmm. GE, it sounds, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, GE get their own bit of vertical integration going on there, right? Yeah, for sure. But to pull back a little bit, how do emoji get created, hmm. right? Can you just crank out all the animals you want and put them out there? No, you can't. There is, like so many things, a regulatory body that determines which emoji get selected year after year and added yeah. to the great pantheon of emoji. It's an organization called Unicode. And uh, yeah, it's like a UN of um, virtual critters and things like that. And so Unicode, in addition to determining which emojis are emojis, determines all of these other online standards for font sizes and all those different things so that you know, the symbolic language of whatever you're putting out there is compatible with phone yeah, language, basically. It, it's something that you can punch in a thing and it'll show up on your screen. It's not like schema, right? It's like, it's like to make sure that there's a schema that makes sense with it across many different types of technologies and devices because it benefits the whole, right? Like a lot of stuff in the internet right. works because there are certain standards across every working body. And because it benefits the whole people follow them. And just to quote the Unicode Consortium sort of like about us, the Unicode Consortium is a nonprofit corporation devoted to developing, maintaining and promoting software internationalization standards and data, particularly the Unicode standard, which specifies the representation of text in all modern software products and standards. Okay, so we can get real boring really quickly here, but that's the type of organization that's interested in also governing the type of emoji that are released. And what I learned from now going back to Emoji Nation, uh, Miss Lee's site, is that as of 2021, there are actually 10 full voting members who pay $21,000 a year for the privilege of voting which emoji get you know released, right? And seven of them, of the 10, are multinational tech companies from the United States, Microsoft, Adobe, Apple, Google, Facebook, Salesforce, and Netflix, right? So at the table are the richest guys in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. th that's what I'm saying. With within the emoji issue, there's this cool nook and cranny for advocacy. And but also the idea that those folks are the stakeholders in that, that all of this power, influence, and control, it rests in the hands of these already very powerful organizations. Yeah. And they're the ones that are essentially determining this modern language yeah. is something that I think we don't really think about much because these emoji just appear and you don't necessarily see this process. Yeah. Oh, no, so, it's, yeah, it's... the idea that somebody needs to say, how are these things being represented is really fascinating and is an interesting parallel to the emoji animal thing. There's a concept in biology that I mentioned called a taxonomic bias, right? Which is like, we're humans, so we tend to lean towards stuff that's more like us. And particularly around animals that are considered charismatic megafauna, mm. right? Which is Pandas. just a wonderful term that essentially refers to tigers and elephants and giraffes and all the stuff that we're really hot on. Is a tiger charismatic? 
Yeah, look at the eyes on those things. Uh, no, pandas. Those That's are... a sexy animal, Steve. Okay. Sexy animal. It's got a post-anal tail. You're going to tell me a tiger's not charismatic? It's got a post-anal tail. What more do yeah. you want, Stephen? For sure. We have a, we, we certainly have a, a bias to those cutesy-wootsy megafauna. But, you know, this is the sort of story that is, is really more a conversation starter. Like, it accomplishes the thing that it's ostensibly trying to shed more light on, right? The whole idea is why is there not more emoji so that we can have a more diverse conversation about mm-hmm. animal and plant life on earth and fungus and so on. Yeah. But it's inspiring that conversation just by its very existence, which I think is, you know, it works. Well, they're looking at it through the lens of branding, right? They're, they're, they're trying to give the water bear, a tardigrade, its glow up. Oh, the they want to yeah. give it its glow up. And I think in that way, it connects back to sober January and the idea of how to make something popular is by making it go viral in some way, like in integrating it into the collective conversation. Where are people at? What are, what they, are they at? Yeah. And, and, you know, so that is precisely what the folks who are interested in the lack of biodiversity in emoji are getting at, right? Is that they are saying there's this critical biodiversity problem. We're in the middle of this die-off. And one way that seems kind of stupid on its face, right? When you dig in, it's like, oh, wait a second. This is actually part of an international global human lexicon that can span languages and cultures and social strata and everything. And so... By bringing more diversity into the emoji sphere, well, then maybe that gets people more interested in the actual biosphere. It all comes back to the idea of how you construct a story around a thing. Yeah. Like in 2020, Unicode introduced two extinct animals into the emoji lexicon, the dodo and the mammoth. And way back in 2015, the World Wildlife Federation had this little initiative where if you tweet this image of the 17 endangered emoji, mm. it was a way of raising money. Somebody, they donate 10 cents, that kind of a thing. And then there was an agency that in 2021 proposed this idea that I don't think went anywhere, but it was a really cool idea where all of these endangered animals, if you were to try and add that emoji to a text or whatever, it would be unavailable, but there'd be a pop-up that would say this animal's endangered and so on ah. and so forth. So it was actually rendering them in gray and saying you don't have access to them anymore because they're now extinct. Wow. So that idea, again- That would drive like, me insane. Oh, I know. I think the idea that <laughs> you know anybody would be like, it's like, I need like, to send a giraffe. It's extremely in, in, important. In a weird, visceral way, that would, ma- that, that would make me in the moment more mad. In that millisecond when you really wanted to send that text and you did not have access to that and it was going to be the perfect zinger, you'd be mad. And you'd be immediately more mad about the emoji than the- the extinction piece. So hopefully that well, would transfer I, you know, over and then you'd get out into the street with your sign. Yeah, it is funny to think about, you know, in our weird little human world, which is obviously so important now, it's the Anthropocene yep. and everything we touch, we affect now. And so we control so much of nature, but how do we understand it? We understand it in these storytelling ways that rely on like, we need to have an emoji of a hot dog or else Western civilization is going to come crashing to a halt. Well, I don't want to find out whether or not that's true. No, of course you don't. That hot dog shows up in the grayed out thing. I'm breaking the phone. Yeah, it would be really sad. No more hot dogs. I mean, what would happen to New York street corners? Fall apart. And nature would re- reclaim them. Yeah. Oh, you <laughs> the roots and the, the vines the, the would dog, kind of- Hot dog <laughs> trees would come back. Yeah. 
And I think what connects the two stories that we've talked about today is that these are stories that are introduced and we're just sort of at the cusp of something that could go away entirely. Like maybe no one ever makes a push for more emoji animals. Maybe the booze-free booze never really takes off. Or the pendulum effect, which has to be partially why we're in the space right now of folks rethinking their relationship with alcohols because people went so hard in the paint apparently since the 90s and then culminating perhaps in this sort of global pandemic where everybody's drinking Manhattans on a Tuesday kind of thing. And so, you know, pendulum wise, this could be that side of the swing. And there is a further idea there, which is all of this is driven to a certain degree by various types of charismatic megafauna, whether it's scientists doing papers, whether it's large beverage organizations trying to shift the culture. Whatever it is, it's a charisma game, and the survival of that particular fauna is dependent on how well they produce the story or how well they bend the culture to the thing that they're pushing. Yeah. So, you know, the rest of us are all the ones standing in a corner at that party kind of trying to assess how smart it is to take this can versus that can. Oh, yeah. Or use this language versus that language and to try and fit in and, you know, hope uh, we don't get devoured by something that crawls out of the potted plant. And you know what, Brandon? I'll tell you one thing. You're my favorite charismatic megafauna. Oh, Stephen, you're my favorite charismatic (laughs) megafauna. I say to myself, Stephen is a charismatic megafauna all day. I mean, you know, just watch you operate. It's great. A lot of charisma. (sighs) Riz. Riz. We'll have to shorten it, though, to be Riz Fawn. (laughs) Think about it. It'll stick. All right. Stephen, this has been Journos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I'm Stephen Jackson. We'll see you next time. Take care. If you'd like to find us out in the world, you can do that in a number of ways. We are on Instagram at Journos Pod. We are on TikTok at Journos Pod. And we're on Substack, uh, substack.com slash at Journos. It's where we're housing all of our podcasts. Check us out, follow us, leave us a message love to hear from you there or anywhere really 